Can you feel the wheel of the year turning? Our Unitarian Universalist living tradition, we draw from six diverse sources, including direct experience, what we know from our firsthand experience, the lived example of social justice activists, wisdom from all the world's religions, and the results of science. Additionally, we have a sixth source, the spiritual teachings of Earth-centered traditions, which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. And some of my favorite practices and rituals from various Earth-centered traditions are the ones that attune us to the tuning, to the turning of the seasons. I'll share my screen with you to give you a visual example of this, of the wheel of the year. So this is kind of a visualization of that turning of the seasons. And although seasons can sometimes feel like they last forever, especially if it's not your favorite season of the year, uh, the, wheel of year the wheel of the year invites us to notice that there are actually subtle, quite noticeable shifts that happen about every six weeks. For example, even though it's still quite cold outside for many of us tuning into this Zoom Sunday service, signs are increasingly cropping up of our inexorable approach towards spring equinox, uh, that time that's equal parts daylight and dark. This photo was taken on Friday, only a few steps out my back door. I suspect a number of you have noticed similar signs of spring's imminent arrival, maybe even some flowers here and there. As you saw on that slide about the wheel of the year, spring equinox is known in parts of the pagan tradition as Ostara, which is derived from Estra. It's an old English name of a goddess, the goddess of the returning light. Estra over time became the name of our holiday known as Easter. You know, that's at that same time that the light returns. And the reason we celebrate Easter with bunnies and eggs has a whole lot more to do with ancient paganism than Christianity, but that is a sermon for another day. For now, my point is to invite us to open our hearts and spirits to notice in a really kind of embodied, wholehearted way in the coming days and weeks that the wheel of the year is turning. We are slowly beginning to emerge out of the winter of our pandemic discontents. It has been a hard year of physical distancing, but vaccines are increasingly on their way. But remember, as the saying goes, it is not vaccines that will save us. It is vaccinations. We got to get them in people's arms. And spring is an archetypal time of dawning light, of new life, new birth, new hope a time of increasing warmth, exuberance, and blossoming. So even as we hold in our hearts all that remains difficult and hard, the spirituality of springtime invites us to also practice wonder, amazement, and awe for all that we are nevertheless grateful for. And next Sunday at 2 a.m., we will spring forward into daylight savings time, for better or worse, We'll lose an hour of early morning sleep, not great. We'll gain an hour of daylight in the evening, better. For what it's worth, I think messing with time twice a year is an absolutely terrible idea and that we should stop doing it. Uh, the disruption to our internal sense of time is not worth it. 
in my judgment, you can disagree, <laughs> but with the approach of spring equinox and time change, it feels like an auspicious occasion to spend a few minutes reflecting on this strange phenomenon of time into which we've all been born into and thrown as it were. And that time, it, it really only gets stranger the more you study it. As Augustine of Hippo confessed more than 1500 years ago, what is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. But if I wish to explain it to someone who asks, I find that I do not know. Along those lines, one book that I've been reading to reflect on this slippery notion of time is titled The Clock Mirage. It's published last year by Yale University Press. It's by a uh, a math mathematics professor at Marlboro College named Joseph Mazur. And there's a lot I appreciated about this book. I'll share a few highlights with you, but I should add that if I were to actually recommend only one book about time, it wouldn't be Mazur's book. Sorry, it's, it's a fine book. Uh, but I would actually tell you to start with the brief, excellent, accessible book that came out a few years ago titled The Order of Time by the contemporary physicist um, Carlo Rovelli. Ravelli has been described as the new Stephen Hawking. His earlier book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, is also great. Also equally brief. These are like 200-page, uh, pretty small books. So you can, uh, a lot of really profound, really neat stuff. This one's The Order of Time. So regarding time, many linguists estimate that the word time is interestingly the single most frequently used noun in the English language. And that makes a lot of sense on one level. Time is really central to our experience. When we're not asking for someone's time, we're speaking of saving time, killing time, serving time, keeping time, not having enough time, tracking time, bedtime, free time, lunchtime. I could go on. And despite how often we refer to time, it does actually remain a really elusive concept to define precisely. Uh, if you check the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, they make a valiant attempt. That entry for time alone weighs in at more than 1,700 words. If I were to read aloud just that one attempt to define time, that alone would take 10 minutes. I will not do that. Time means a lot of things. But honestly, the most interesting thing, at least to me, is the wild things that time means. Most of you, for example, have probably heard about that classic identical twin thought experiment for explaining one aspect of Einstein's theory of special relativity, that if one twin stayed here on Earth with the rest of us while another twin boarded a spaceship at increasingly fast, at extremely fast speeds, that when that space traveling twin returned home, that twin would have aged less and the twin who had stayed on this planet would have aged more, even though they're identical twins. The reason is that speed slows down time. The faster you travel, the slower time passes relative to anyone moving at slower speeds. And speed isn't the only cause of temporal relativity. Let me give you my other favorite bizarre yet true example. If you were on top of a mountain, time passes just a little bit faster relative to someone who is down in the valley because gravity is comparatively weaker at higher elevations. That's wild to me. Indeed, scientists have demonstrated that if you have a precise enough measuring device, and we do have these, we would also find that for the same reason, a clock simply placed on the floor runs a little more slowly than one placed just a little higher up on a table. 
So let me say a little bit more about this phenomenon that helps explain why the more you think about it, the more difficult it can be to grok this slippery concept of time. Given what we've been exploring about how factors such as speed and gravity can affect time, how might we best respond to a question such as this one? Which clock is more accurate, the one on the floor or the one on the roof? Well, as weird as it might seem, what physicists tell us is that that question is meaningless. We might just as well ask what's the most real, the value of sterling in dollars or the value of dollars in sterling. There's no truer value. There are just two monetary currencies that have value relative to each other. Likewise, there is no truer time. There are just two times, one from the clock on the floor and another from the clock on the table, that change relative to each other. Neither is truer than the other. Times, it turns out, are legion. And although it may now feel like we are way on down the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland, it is also what science tells us is actually the case in this sometimes quite uncanny reality in which we find ourselves. So despite all the helpful advice from meditation teachers, including me, and it really is helpful advice to kind of try to be here now, to be in the present moment, you know, Ramdas famously said, remember, be here now. At the same time, no pun intended, physicists such as Carlo Rovelli challenge us to consider that there's a certain sense in which now means nothing. Our present does not extend throughout the universe. It's more like a bubble around us at most. Remember what I said earlier, that the word time is the most frequently used noun in the English language. And that actually may be at the heart of the problem that contributes to our confusion about time. In many ways, we're accustomed to thinking of the world as made up of nouns, which my elementary school grammar textbook told me means people, place, or things. Anybody else learned that definition of nouns? Nouns are people, places, and things. But the universe actually, rather than being a collection of nouns, is really much more a big old giant verb. It's an ongoing action. It's an interdependent web of horizons. It's less accurate to think of the universe as made up of entities and substances and more accurate to think of the universe as consisting of events, happenings, processes. The American inventor, systems theorist and author Buckminster Fuller said it this way, I am not a thing. I am not a noun. I seem to be a verb, an evolutionary process, an integral function of the universe. My favorite quote along these lines is actually from the particle physicist Karen Barad from her excellent, but unlike Ravelli's book, you know, that I said was like tiny and small and 200 pages and easy to read. Let me just forewarn you, Barad's book is big and difficult to read. <laughs> so you may be interested in it, but just start with Ravelli. Her book is titled Meeting the Universe Halfway. It came out about 15 years ago from Duke University Press. This quote's a little more difficult to grok, but I think it's worth sitting with over time and seeing if you can allow it to sink in and transform your perception. In Dr. Barad's words, time is not a succession of evenly spaced out individual moments, and space is not a collection of pre-existing points. Rather, 
and this is it, spatiality is intraactively produced. Spatiality is intraactively produced. Let me say more about what that means. Do you remember back the difference between intermurals and intramurals? So intermurals with an ER is between two different rival schools. Think about whoever was the rival school. They would come over to your school and you'd play a game. That's intermurals. Intramurals is in your school. They would split you into different teams, like for a field day and, and play. That's intramurals. When, when Broad says that spatiality is intraactively produced, she's saying it's more like intramurals than intermurals. I'll say a little more about that. Let's play with this metaphor. So going about our daily life, time and space can often appear to be like intramurals, two separate things, two separate teams from two different schools. Time feels like one thing, one predictable thing, the succession of evenly spaced out individual moments. And space feels like another thing, another school, a separately predictable collection of pre-existing points. But after Einstein, we know that space and time are more like intramurals, an interaction between two teams within the same school that are deeply connected, all part of the same thing. They are relative, connected, deeply interdependent with one another, which is why scientists started combining them in one word to just say space-time. And it's really even more complex than that. It's more like space-times, plural. And if all of this is feeling just a little bit too abstract for any of you, or perhaps even a little dizzying, I invite you to consider that it really is worth reflecting on, and as some of you may have done extensively, because understanding relativity, the intimate connection of space-time, and, and that spatiality is intraactively produced, can really all together contribute to this powerful sense of what our UU seventh principle calls the interdependent web of all existence. The more you get that spatiality is intraactively produced, the more deeply you will found, feel caught up in that verb that is the universe, that this interdependent web of all existence. We really are, all of us, the whole cosmos, we're all on the same team deeply interdependent, this interdependent co-arising with all other beings and ecosystems of this planet and really of the cosmos itself. So let's take a deep breath. That's a lot, right? Whew. And as much as I love the science of time, let me shift toward my conclusion by bringing it on back home to our personal sense of time. Not only is space-time intra-subjective, but also our individual experience of time can be quite subjective as well, depending on our state of mind and other related factors. So if we turn back the clock, so to speak, I think it's helpful to remember sometimes the way that things like clocks shape our perception of time. But if we roll back the clock, time used to be a lot fuzzier. For most of human history, most people tracked the time of day, not by some device, miniature device on their wrist, but with a vague notion of where the sun was in the sky, or perhaps more precisely on a sundial if one was nearby, or if you were super rich, maybe kind of some sort of water clock device. Before the invention of the telephone, the automobile, these other modern devices that are keeping us increasingly constantly connected over vast distances, Everything used to be a lot more local, 
appointments couldn't be precise to the minute and second, even if you wanted them to be. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some major advantages to how precise we can be about time today. But even in the ancient world, there were already laments about schedules becoming oppressive. Indeed, more than a thousand years ago, um, 2,000 years ago, excuse me, the Roman playwright um, Titus Plautus proclaimed that um, most people, sorry, here's the quote, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish hours, confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. And if occasionally encountering a sundial horrified Plautus, I can only imagine what he would think of an Apple Watch or similar data-driven devices that measure and quantify to the second in you know, aspects of our lives in such precise detail as has become possible here in the 21st century. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Uh, there are real advantages to having objective, quantifiable data about yourself for a given day and to compare trends over time. How long you remained seated without standing up might, you know, say, oh, there's data there. I need to stand up more frequently. How much exercise am I getting? How many hours am I sleeping and more? All that info can be extremely helpful. But because we know that multiple things can be true, we can also admit that such information can also be oppressive. We are, after all, human beings and not machines. So whether or not you um, have a practice of taking like a Sabbath from technology once a week or other related things, I invite you to consider that in addition to all the benefits of time management, don't forget to sometimes carve out space to simply receive the day as it comes. I find that phrase actually really helpful. When am I just receiving the day? And when am I trying to manage the day? When are there times when as little as possible or even nothing is on the schedule and you can just go with the flow, allow the day to emerge without having to consult your smartwatch or even a sundial? And I know all that's easier said than done, but I'm always so grateful when I give myself the chance to receive the day instead of always feeling the need to manage and measure time. Along those lines, I'll leave you for now with a quote from Annie Dillard's wonderful book, The Writing Life. Dillard has thought extensively about the many different ways various people throughout time have attempted to create a meaningful life. And the line from that book that's always really stuck with me over the years is this, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one, that's what we're doing. And maybe that's really obvious, but I've just found that quote to be quite powerful and focusing and just a really helpful touchstone. I don't know what the future will bring, but I do have some influence over how I spend this minute, this hour, and the next, which in turn shapes the arc of a day and accumulates over time into how I will have spent my life. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. In that spirit, as we continue to open our hearts and minds to this wild and strange space-time in which we find ourselves and how we might make the most of it as well as savor it, 
Let's sing together a song that invites us to explore the mysteries of our human existence. Where do we come from? <laughs>